You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning, everybody. Let me be another face here to welcome you to Liberty Church. Uh, It's really good to be here. It's really good to be in church with you all today. Um, And it's a gift to have the chance to open God's word together. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Andrew Dembski. Um, My wife, Rachel, and I, we live outside of Carlisle with our three kids, uh, June, Rosie, and Jack. Uh, We've been coming to Liberty here for about seven years, um, and I've got the honor of serving on uh, the elder team here as well. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about surrender and how prayer can help you surrender to God. And if you think about it, I think the Christian message of surrender is it's one of the most radical countercultural messages that, that there is today. I'm an entrepreneur, and so whenever I'm, I'm in that, that world, kind of Monday to Friday, whenever I go on LinkedIn or whenever I go to a conference somewhere and I'm listening to people in that world talk, it's striking how much of the content, when you get down to the roots of it, it's all about finding yourself, empowering yourself, or discovering something new within yourself that you didn't realize beforehand. And if that's not concerning enough to know that like, as, as we professionals go about our work, that's what material is pointing us to. After work, when I come back home for family movie night and there's some princess movie on, the, the underlying theme and message of that princess movie is always the exact same. It's about finding self-discovery. It's about a journey to self-fulfillment. Follow your heart. Find your voice. Be free. That's the promise of our post-Christian and rapidly becoming anti-Christian culture that we live in every day. So how's that going for us? If we look around, if we scroll on social media, if we turn on the news, Do you feel like we're a well-adjusted and functional society? Nope. Not at all. We live in some really messed up times right now. Um, But as Christians, I think it's important for us to remember that it's from our context here, where we live in comfortable Western American culture, this feels at times like it's the, the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But it's important for us to remember that the church, the global church, has lived in messed up times over and over and over again. This is nothing new. This experience that we um, have right now is nothing new for the saints. The trials that we face today are no different than the trials that those in the early church faced, that those across time have faced. And interestingly enough, the solution is the exact same as well. So now we're going um, to turn to our scripture this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We're going to go from verses 22 through 39. Your bulletin says it stops at 35. That is not not Tiffany's fault. That's my fault. I was originally going to 35, and I got too excited and went all the way to 39. Um, So that's page 944 in the black hardcover Bibles, if you want to grab one of those and then open it up. Join me as we read God's word. uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the God, right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father God, we thank you for your Spirit's presence with us this morning. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would speak. I pray, Lord, that my words would be yours. I pray that you would be here amongst us to prepare our hearts and our minds uh, to hear and see what you have for us this morning, God. We thank you that you are a good God. Amen. So this morning, we're going to unpack this text in three parts. First is our fallen state. Second is our call. And third is our defender. That is, one, our fallen state. Two, our call. And third, our defender. So first, our fallen state. When we look at the first few verses of this passage in Romans 8, we see a world suffering from brokenness. In verse 22, it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. If this was true in Paul's lifetime, how much more so is that groaning and pain true today? 
Many issues that we see across our society today, things that we ourselves struggle with, have their roots in this futile human effort to fill the gap in our hearts, to answer the pains that these groanings speak to. It could be our attempt to drown it out through distraction and comfort by chasing more material gains or overindulging in alcohol or pursuing sexual gratification. It could be filling up every moment of the day with content, whether it be podcasts or cable news or social media feeds or sitcoms, just so that we can avoid the silence of our own thoughts. It could be placing our hope in the outcome, the right outcome of the next election. It could be placing our hope in uh, wondering if we were born inside the wrong body or not. And it could be quiet quitting on our marriage because life is too short to pursue someone when it just doesn't feel as exciting as it used to. We could go on through these examples for days and for days. We see people around us and we ourselves struggle with accepting these lies and using these lies as vessels to carry water that they were never meant to carry. They're fractured and they're broken. We're trying to fill our hearts with these things. I struggle with this myself. And this longing for the, that the human heart experiences, all of us experience, this is fundamental as gravity. It's the physics of spirituality that we were made in the image of a holy God, every one of us. And that is a grace, but in that fall that we've experienced, we, we have a brokenness within us that all of us are seeking to fill And our question as Christians is, how do we go about attempting to fill that void, to fill that gap that the depths of our souls are groaning about at such a deep level? All of these examples that I shared and many, many more are cheap substitutes for God. Uh, These distractions, they're attractive to us because we're sinners. And it's important to remember that that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We, are, we as a state, apart from God, are sinful. The sins that we commit, our behavior, our morality, is an outflowing of that fallen state apart from the redemption of Jesus Christ. So to grasp this full scope, to see what's happening, I think we should go back to the beginning. And I want to point towards Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the spirit or said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the original lie of Satan to mankind. And it's, it's a lie that's intended to throw doubt over our perceived relationship with God, how God perceives us as his children. Satan wants to cause you to question God's posture towards you. That's the very first lie that we see here that led to the fall. Another way to say this is, does God really want what is best for you? 
Or is he just trying to control you? We need to know that from the very beginning of time, we as human beings created in the image of God are in the midst of a cosmic battle. There are forces of true good and there are forces of absolute evil that are warring against each other and our souls are in the midst of this battle. The human desire for something to fill that void in our lives with something good, that is good, that was placed there by God. And when we fill that within the context of God's good design, we find actual satisfaction. But thanks to the fall, that once good desire has been warped, and we're now susceptible to being distracted by fake gods, or even to lead ourselves to think that we are God. You see, Satan, he actually uses these fallen desires to distract us from the source of our true fulfillment. I think it's important to remember here motives. Because Satan, Satan isn't trying to gather worshipers to himself. He's more cynical than that. Satan wants to damage and hurt God the Father. And so he seeks to distract us and drag us away from the true source of our fulfillment, God, in order that we might find that in this world, find that in ourselves, find that with him. And that warped perspective right there is what leads us down the wrong road, those early lies. In our comfortable lives, um, excuse me, Satan knows the pain that this causes God, and he knows that God longs for all of us to come to him. And so we need to be ready to face that reality that there is a force in this world that, that wanders around seeking to devour us. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan roams like a lion looking for someone to devour. And so make no mistake or be under no illusions. There's a cosmic battle being waged. We are in the middle of that. Our souls our households, our children's souls are at stake here. And so I don't want us to approach life through a lens of, of lukewarm morality that wants to fill a set of checklists or, or live a certain way or feel a certain way. I want to set our mind and our scope on what is reality. Where do we find ourselves today? And an illustration that you may have heard before that I want to bring up again is, is of the man who brings a baby tiger home. And he brings this baby tiger home thinking it's a pet. It's cute. It kind of looks like a cat. And he brings it home, and he pets it, and he feeds it, and he nurtures it. And the tiger shows this man the love and warmth that he's looking for, the affection that he's looking for. But then something happens. This tiger begins to grow and grow and grow. And because you can't just walk down the sidewalk with a full-grown tiger, he stops bringing that tiger out. That tiger stays in home, locked up. He's there with that tiger, spending time with it. He thinks all is well and all is good. Until one day he wakes up and that tiger eats him alive because he's a tiger and that's what he does. The same thing is true of us with sin. Sin destroys. It's poison. It seeks our absolute destruction. But thanks to God, we're not stuck in this fallen state. We're not meant to wander out of this predicament by our own cunning, by our own willpower, by our own ability to white-knuckle something. It's because of the work of Jesus that we have hope of redemption. And God doesn't want us to stay stuck in a place where we're pursuing the wrong things. 
He wants to provide to us a path back to the way things were at the beginning. And that's a restored relationship with God. We see that in Genesis, that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's the great story of redemption, that though we are sinners, God desires us, he provided a path for us, and he equips us with his spirit that encourages us and nurtures us along that journey back to him. And that's God's great rescue plan. Other parents in the room, perhaps you've been blessed by the Jesus Storybook Bible as you read that to your kids. I'm I'm struck by that book, how it encourages my faith by its simple language and its constant reminder that God has a big plan that arcs across the entire story, the entire narrative of Scripture. And that plan is a great rescue plan to bring glory unto himself. And so with that in mind, that takes us to our second point here, which is our call. God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and to die at the hands of sinful men so that we could have a path back to a reconciled relationship with him. He paid the ransom for our freedom, and we see reference to this freedom in verse 21. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I like the way that the New King James Version translates this verse. It says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I think it speaks to the deep, deep impacts of sin. That it's not just something that Christians struggle with, but there's a depth here, a fallenness that touches all of us as humans. And even the very world that we live in, creation itself is broken and groans for redemption. Redemption that can only find its, its true working out in the work of Jesus Christ. So all of creation longs for that liberty that we find as children of God. And in verse 24, we see that it is into this hope that we are saved. There's already, this is already a reality for those of us who follow Jesus. Our status has been changed from sinner to saint because of the work of Jesus. He has restored us to relationship with God. But what we find in this moment of time is that we ourselves still live in a fallen world. We're still broken vessels. Though we've been restored in status uh, with our Father God through the work of Jesus, we still must walk day to day in this world where a devil still roams around trying to devour us. We refer to that often here as this tension between the already and the not yet. And it's a... It's a frustrating place to be at times because my heart groans for the day when the Lord just takes it all away and we just find ourselves in the, the joy of his presence. But that's not what God has for us today. He has us here in this world at this place and at this time for a reason, and he can, he can be glorified in that. And I think there's a line, there is a line in the song that we sang this morning, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther, that I think captures the spirit well. Do we... Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Our hope in this life isn't to strive harder or to white-knuckle our way through difficulty or through challenge or through struggle. Our hope comes through surrender. This hope means that we have faith that will overcome. And I love how Paul says, For who hopes in what he sees? 
In that statement, he's acknowledging the struggle that we face as Christians to follow Christ while hearing the lies of Satan and seeing evil prosper all around us. And what does God, what does God tell us to do in the midst of this tension? Let's look at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This patience in waiting, this is surrender. When we can't control something, I think some of the, the biggest communication challenges that Rachel and I have gone through, if you boil them down to their root, it's my pride, and an expression of my pride comes in my desire to fix and control things in the moment that I learn about them. And for Rachel, she wants to hear, be heard in those moments and doesn't always need things to be fixed. I can leave my toolbox outside. That's okay. Just sit here and be with me in this moment. And it's hard to surrender to something when you have this guttural desire to change and to fix and to influence the outcome. Perhaps you've felt this with sins that perpetuate in your life, that if I could just wake up early and pray to God and read my Bible every single day. If I could just, if I could just, if I could just, this would be better. That is our attempt to wrap our knuckles around that steering wheel and grip it tighter and tighter and tighter until we strangle this thing out of our lives. But that's not how real freedom works in this life. That's not the model that God gave us. The model is the opposite of of self-exertion and relying on our own wit and willpower The model is to surrender to God, to sit back and to listen and to see what he has for us. We see this modeled for us time and time again in the Psalms. I'm going to point out two here. The first is Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I can read that sometimes. I can pray that sometimes and be like, I don't believe that. I desire all of these sorts of things. That's the gift of prayer, though, is praying through that. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, we're called to bring that to the Father over and over again. That's the the process, a part of our sanctification, to continue to bring that struggle to God. Even if you're not marked by the feelings that you desire, God calls us to him to express those things. We're not meant to carry that load by ourselves or be perfect before we come before the Father. And again, in Psalm 16, we hear David saying something similar. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have, no good, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I shall not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see, God wants us to come to a place where we fully depend upon him. He wants our whole hearts, and that means we can't share our hearts with idols or pet sins, have a portion of our hearts set aside for God and another portion locked away with a key that we don't open, that we reserve to ourselves, that we act out something over here, but in the root of our hearts, something else is lived out over here. God wants us to lay those things down and to surrender control over our whole lives to him. Our dreams, our desires, our goals, our visions, all of those things, he wants them all. 
And it's really, really hard to give them to him at times. God loves us enough to bring us to that place of surrender. And for some of us, it comes easier than others. I'm a very stubborn man. And so I have several instances in my life where I have been brought to the point of surrender because I've hit a rock bottom of sorts. I wish I was smarter than that, but I keep repeating those patterns. But as I look back on them, that's my testimony. And I see the power of God working through my futility as a man. And I see him being faithful over and over again through that. I'll just share one brief snapshot of a, of a time when that happened. Is I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur, and I've done that since I came out of college. And as my business grew and saw success, that idol became my identity. And it was an idol to the point where I didn't even... I, the scary thing about idols is we don't realize they're idols until something hits us. And then with perspective, we can see I gave everything to that. And that was entrepreneurship for me. It was my everything. I was blinded to the impact that it had on my family as our business grew in number. We had more than 10 people spread all over the world. We had clients on six of the seven continents. Hundreds of users used our software every day to log in and help manage their work. I felt really good about that. But the reality of that is what you see on Instagram and LinkedIn about entrepreneurship is that there's a lot of suck behind the scenes. And that, that suck was a lot for us. And we were paying our team members first and paying our my business partner, I paying our families last. And that reality that I brought into our home caused a lot of tension and a lot of friction in our home to where I was accumulating a lot of credit card debt. I was building, I was floating bill payments. The debit card was bouncing at the grocery store. It was not a, not a good place to be. And I kept us there because of the way I idolized my identity as an entrepreneur. And it took repeated, repeated knockings of God. And by his grace and mercy, I can look back and see there were many times where he gave me an out. And I kept pushing through those saying, I've got this. I've got this. If I try harder, if I buckle down more, I'll be able to push through this. But by his grace and by his mercy, he gave me the gift of community. Brothers here in my Bible study, echo what Bob shouted out this morning, like Bible studies are the place to do life and share life together. And they call us and challenge us to live life in a deep way and help us face reality. These lies that we believe, they are fake illusions, brothers and sisters. We need reality. And brothers and sisters in Christ can remind us what reality is every single day. I had an amazing wife who loved me enough to, to walk with me through that. And when I got to the point where I could surrender and say, God, this, I need to be in you. This entrepreneurship doesn't define me. God just held me in that. I, I came to realize it's okay to go and get a job. The world didn't stop spinning. But for so long, it felt like it would to listen to somebody else, to get a W-2 from somebody else. But through that, God helped me kill that idol. And now I'm grateful for that. That was really, really painful for us to go through, but he's led us through that and we're stronger on the other side of that and glory be to God for it. It was career identity for me. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever you're clinging to right now with all of your might, that you're praying that either people don't find out about or that I can't really trust God with this, I've got to double down on this, whatever that thing is for you, let go and surrender that before God. He is a good God and he will hold it. And I can, 
I can tell you from personal experience that he will, he will bless you through that. I'll take us back into Romans 8, verse 26 now. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For if we do not know, do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We are sinners, and God sent Jesus to redeem us back into his family. And we groan for that redemption in a place that's so deep, I don't think we fully understand it. Just the depth of our groaning, the depth of our desire for something bigger than ourselves is something that sociologists and psychologists are striving to define. And if you, you listen to Jordan Peterson or any of those in that secular world, um, as Jordan Peterson specifically has a different story, but as, as you hear people try to define in intellectual terms that groaning, I think it's fascinating to try to examine it outside the bounds of, of it being placed by God and it being experienced because we're created in his image. God hears that groaning in us, and he sent his spirit to intercede on our behalf. And that means that even when we don't know what to say, he is listening. I think the prayer of surrender is a prayer that says, Lord, I can't see the way. Show me the way. Lord, I don't know how you can use this situation for good. Would you do it? You see, we don't serve a God who's far off and doesn't care. He sees you. He wants you. He's actively pursuing you. And he wants you to come to a place of surrender. God wants us all in that place of surrender. And some of us here now are in a state of rebellion. I've been there myself. There's a pet sin that you know about that no one else does. At least that's what we think. And you're probably hearing two voices right now whispering to you in that place. And depending on how long you've been hanging out there, one might be a lot louder than the other. But Satan says, stay here. You're just going to be a burden to somebody else if you share this. And when they hear it, they're probably going to think that you're unworthy anyway. So why not just stay alone, stay here, stay with me? And on the other side, there's the voice of God. And God is saying that while you were still a sinner, I died for you. And not just for you, but for everybody in this room. And not just for everybody in this room, everyone in this state, everyone in this country, everyone in this world that is living and breathing right now. And not only those who are living and breathing, but all those who have died in the past and all those that will yet live in the future. God died and provided a means of reconciliation and redemption for all of us because he loves us. And I want to read a portion this morning of John 17. This is one of my favorite sections of scripture. And I want to share this because in it, God displays a prayer of surrender. But he also models the heart of our Savior towards his children, towards you and I. So these are the words of our Savior. This is John 17, verses 10 through 19. All mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. 
I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I am coming to you, and those things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus is praying a prayer of surrender here. He trusted God in the face of an unspeakable terror. And what I think is unique about Jesus' situation is he knew exactly what he was about to walk into when he prayed that prayer of surrender. He knew what was coming, and he walked into it. He trusted God enough to follow through. And that raises the question, do we trust God enough? If I'm going to surrender to somebody, I need to know that they're going to treat, that there's terms of surrender in place, right? That I'm not just going to be beaten down after I make that surrender. That there's, I can, I can trust and have faith in the goodwill of that whom I'm surrendering into. And a story that illustrates this is that during the American Revolution, there was a British cavalry commander, and his name was Bannister Tarleton. And he was made famous to us in a contemporary context because he plays the villain in Mel Gibson's The Patriot. That's a fictional caricature, but that man who that was based on actually lived and did some horrible things. Um, so after Charleston fell, in, uh, fell to the British in 1780, there was only one group of organized continental soldiers left in the whole state. And it was a group of Virginians under a colonel named Abraham um, Buford. Now, Cornwallis, who was the general in command down there, tasked Tarleton to go out, find this group of Virginians who were trying to come down and aid General Lincoln in Charleston, find them, destroy them. If we take them out, there's no more continental presence here, and we can focus our energy on turning this people against these rebels. That was his call and his mission. So Tarleton and his cavalry set out, and they caught up with Buford and this group, and a battle ensued. And it went back and forth and back and forth, and it came to the point where Colonel Buford realized that all hope was lost, and so he attempted to surrender, uh, he and his remaining men. And what happened was that Tarleton and his dragoons, instead of receiving their surrender, he met them with sabers and shots, and all of those men were killed that day. And as word of that massacre got out, the phrase Tarleton's Quarter was coined. And that actually had the reverse effect of what the British were going for. Instead of you know, driving the, the spirit out of the colonials, it drove more to the American cause. And so it, it put that spirit in people of, I can't, I can't surrender to these folks. They don't have my good at heart. They're just going to kill me, so why don't I just fight to the end? That's the spirit that that created. And I sense that sometimes... And I love that Michael even shared this this morning in his liturgy. I feel the same way about God. That I view him as Tarleton and his dragoons coming at me with sabers and pistol shot, seeking to destroy me. That he doesn't actually want me to surrender because the sin in me is just too much. But is that what God has for us? 
and perhaps the opposite. Wouldn't that be a lie that Satan would want me to believe? Going back to that first lie, did he actually say? So as we ponder about who we surrender to, we need to remember who we're surrendering to. Can I trust God with my surrender? How is he going to respond? That brings us to our third and final point, our defender. I want to bring us back into our passage in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 31 now. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What then shall we say to these things? I love that line. And as I hear that, I can just picture Paul. I don't know if he's writing this himself, if he's dictating this and someone else is writing it down, but I picture he's fired up. He's pacing the room. like He's bringing the heat right now as he's writing this. And thinking about Paul, he's such, he's such an interesting character. He had an easy life. I think it was easy. He had a place of a position of power. He had a position of influence. He had the right college degrees of the day, had sat under the right teachers, had done all the right things. And then God meets him in this unignorable way on the road to Damascus. And from that moment on, when God gives him this call to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, everything changes for him. His life gets measurably harder. He's now a bivocational minister bouncing from town to town where he once enjoyed the prestige of all those around him. Now he's like, he's making stuff with his hands and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's engaging in all of these confrontations but he's also discipling and ministering and encouraging people and raising up leaders in the church. He's getting kicked out of town. He's getting beaten, beaten down. He's shipwrecked. He's bit by a snake. All of these different things are happening to him. It's it's measurably a more challenging and difficult life. And yet let's look at his words. In the midst of this suffering, this sorrow, his heart is joyful. His heart sounds like the heart of someone who had an easy life, right? But no, he's in the midst of what the world would say, that looks like that sucks. And he's very, he knows where his hope is found. He makes this first point of persuasion to us as the reason for why we should place our hope and trust and surrender in God. He points us and reminds us that God is for us, that he already gave us his son. And what more does he need to do for us to be convinced that he's actually for us other than giving us his only son. And he continues in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? This authority, this tone that Paul brings in this reminder to us It reminds me of that scene in the original Lion King where Simba is, he's feeling his juice. He's ready to be king. And he says, I'm going to take Nala and we're going to go to where dad said we can't go. We're going to go to the elephant graveyard. And so he's all high on himself thinking he has already achieved his place as king as he's going around the elephant graveyard. And he's feeling really good until Whoopi Goldberg and the rest of the hyenas show up. And now things are looking, things are looking really, really bad for him. They're going to make an easy lunch out of this thing. And he's backed into a corner, and you see the hyenas descending on him. And what does Simba do in that moment? I love it. He like puts himself in front of Nala right there, like he's big stuff. And he starts to roar, and he roars twice, but his roar is like, meow. It's such a little pathetic roar. 
But then you remember what happens when that third roar comes? He opens his mouth and boom, the authority of the real king comes out and he jumps from the shadows. He takes out the hyenas and he rescues his own. I think that's such a cool picture of how God fights for us, that it's not up to us. When we try to manhandle a situation, we're roaring like Simba. When we surrender, we trust the real king who has power over the evil that we're confronted with every day. Verse 35 continues, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is quoting here from Psalm 44. And write that psalm down, and I encourage you to to read it tonight, read it this afternoon. In my Bible, the psalm's headed with the statement, come to our help. It's a psalm of anguish, and it's a psalm of surrender. But I want to highlight verse 6, Psalm 44, verse 6 here. It says, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. This is such a strong and encouraging statement. And I picture it, if I just read that verse to you out of context, you'd say this person is like, God just delivered the battle to him and he's now standing in victory and he's, he's feeling it right now. He's, he's got that high sense. But no, when you read the rest of the psalm, you realize that these people are in the pit right now, that they don't know where God is in this moment. They're looking around and all they see on all sides is the enemy. They don't know why they're here or where God is. He feels so far off in that place. In that place. Paul points us to God. You see, even when everything around me is failing, when the pillars that once held the weight of our hopes turn out to be rotting and failing, even then I should trust in the Lord because my sword will not save me. Paul continues in Romans eight thirty-seven. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, death itself can't separate us. What do we have to fear? Why are we slow to surrender and to trust? Prayer is our means to communicate with the creator of the universe. And thanks to the blood of Jesus and the presence of his Holy Spirit, we have a direct line to that creator. Any moment of your day, you can pause and talk to the God who created all things because of the blood of Jesus. The more time we spend in prayer and calling out to God, And in silence and in solitude, meditating on his promises and the things that he has done for us, the more and more our hearts will come to a place of surrender. Now, through this summer series, 
We've been talking about prayer in a lot of different contexts. And each time we've shared some practical tools to help you in your prayer, in your prayer life. And I want to share two tools with you today. One is a prayer and one is a resource. First, I'm going to, I'm going to walk through this prayer. When we're facing struggle, when we're facing challenge, when we're facing suffering, it's so easy for me, and I, I trust it's the same for you, to say, God, why me? Why now? Why this? I thought you had more for me here. And I think we're asking the wrong question. I think the question we should be asking is, Lord, what do you have for me in this suffering? Would this season of suffering not be wasted? Would you draw me closer to you? I do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit does. Would you hear my groans and leave me not unchanged? I'll repeat that. Lord, what do you have for me in this suffering? Would this season of suffering not be wasted? Would you draw me closer to you? I don't know what to pray for, but I know the Spirit does. Would you hear my groans and leave me not unchanged? The second resource, two books, uh, both by the author Andrew Murray. Uh, one is called Humility and the other is called Absolute Surrender. If you, if you read anything by Andrew Murray, you're going to find the heart of a pastor. And Rachel gave me, uh, we were dating and Rachel gave me the book Humility, which <laughs> one of the best gifts she ever gave to me. Um, but man, it was telling for college-aged college Andrew. Um, he's, he's got a gift of speaking softly to the human heart and, and brings to the surface our need to, to find our identity in the cross of Christ and to help us lay into the grave of Christ each and every day. So those would be two resources. That prayer of what do you have for me in this season, Lord? That's a posture towards God. What do you have for me in this? And more time, more study can go into humility or absolute surrender or both by Andrew Murray. So in conclusion, we are sinners who left to ourselves. We desire to be our own gods. Satan wants to convince us that true happiness is found apart from God. And he does that to isolate us and to keep us separated from God's love by coercion and shame because he knows that brings pain to God. It pains God to see his children suffering. God wants us to surrender to him and to trust that he has what is best for us. God has put his money where his mouth is. What can separate us when we are safely in his arms? Not even death itself. No idol, no identity, no goal, no dream that we choose apart from God even comes close. Surrender is the way. And so I want to leave you today with one question. Do you find yourself running toward that love? Or do you find yourself running away from that love? Come to your knees in prayer before a holy God who left heaven to enter earth to live amongst his created beings, only to be rejected, tortured, and killed by them, all so that you and I and all of our fellow saints across time could be reunited with our Father for his glory and his pleasure. And that completes the story of redemption, that story that started way back in Genesis 3. 
God has been working towards this point of redemption all through the Bible, through the Old Testament and the New. He's working it out now as we find ourselves here in this already, but not yet. Let us pray. Our Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to pursue us. You will not leave us struggling after these things, these attempts to fill the the void that's in our heart. But you pursue us. You provide means. You give us exits, Lord. You, You desire us to be with you. And so I pray, Lord, right now that your spirit, your spirit's presence would rest in this place. I pray for the hearts here, Lord, that you would draw our hearts to you. Whatever you have for us in this moment, would we act on it, Father God? And would your spirit equip us with that strength? Thank you that we can gather here together today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.